0: If you have your Bibles, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, verse 10 to 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what persons or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things, which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. November 22nd, 1963, there's a day that would live in infamy for Americans because that was the day when a president was assassinated. JFK was shot in Dallas, Texas, and naturally what would happen when the president is shot or, or killed is that there's going to be an investigation to figure out how did this happen and who did it. And different intelligence agencies tried to figure out what happened and, and why did they let this slip through the cracks. And most famous, one of the commissions known as the Warren Commission started to look for this person, they believe that the killing was done by one man, and his name is Lee Harvey Oswald. They said that he shot all three shots by himself, and Lee Harvey Oswald was captured, and before he was able to be tried, he was killed himself. And you would think that would be case closed, or was it? Almost immediately afterward, there was a plethora of different people that came out and said, that what they have heard and what was reported were not the same. They, there were some ear witness people that were there that claimed that the shot came from one side and another one came from a grassy knoll. And this made the public challenge and question the legitimacy of this case. And the people wanted to know. They wanted to know What was was the evidence? Why would they assume that it was this one person as opposed to multiple shooters? And the Warren Commission's response was that if if the general public had the same evidence that they had, they would conclude the same thing, that it was only done by this one man. And the public responded by saying, well, if it is so easily discernible, if we can figure this out ourselves, then let us see the evidence. Surprisingly, the Warren Commission said they would. They would. They, they agreed that they will release this to the public, just not immediately. In 1964, the following year, the file was put into the National Archive, where it is said that it will not be opened until 75 years after it was sealed. That date will be 2039. And there's a quote that explains why does it have to take so long before they could open this document. And it says here, quote, it's intended to protect the innocent persons who could otherwise be damaged because of the relationship with the participants in the case, end quote. Now, this sounds very altruistic. It sounds like it's very, it's very thoughtful in terms of thinking about protecting others. But conspiracy theorists will think that, no, they're actually trying to protect themselves because 75 years from at that point, all the people that are involved would be dead. And if there was a trial for those agencies, they, no one would be able to do so. And they assumed that 75 years from then, that no one would even care about this anymore. However, since then, there's been multi- multiple books and movies and documentary. All, there's a tremendous amount of content that's written about this case because they want to know who shot JFK. And since then, there's, it's just, there's always new content, it seems. And the question is, why are there so many people that are obsessed with this case? And that is because people are driven by what they love. People are always driven by what they love. They will devote their lives to a case. They will devote their lives to a certain hobby because they love that particular field. And for us as Christians, as sojourners here on earth, what should drive us the most is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he must be the one that we pursue the most. As sojourners here in San Francisco, what should drive us is our love for God. Our relationship with him must drive us to live in faithful obedience to the Lord. Peter is writing to the, these believers here that scattered throughout all of Asia Minor. And these believers at the time were struggling because not only were they forced to leave uh, with their exiles scattered from their homes, but they were in a new environment. And Peter tried to encourage them by letting them know that although you may be an alien and a sojourner in this land, what is more than just your citizenship here on earth, is your citizenship in heaven. That what you have in Christ will make you naturally alienated from the world. And why does SF need SFBC? Last week, we talked about how the hope that we have in Christ, and we're to go and tell other people about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the the realities that is to come. This week, I want to answer that question, why does SF need SFBC? Is to really expand on that, to testify that there is a holy God through the way that we live, that we as Christians are called to live a holy life because we worship a holy God. And our hope is that as we live like Jesus Christ, that the people all around us who do not know Christ will get a glimpse of our Savior, be convicted by their sin, and then place their faith on Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Christians are sojourners, and we're called to live holy lives because we worship a holy Savior. But in order to do that, I want to go through the first point, which is our motivation If we want to live holy lives in the city to represent Jesus Christ, to win people to Christ, the first thing we need to have right now is the motivation for a holy life. And let's find in verse 10 to 12. Verse 10, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Peter continues on from what he said earlier, the fact that we have this unseen reality waiting for us because of the unseen love that we have, or this love that we have for our unseen Savior. This is the inheritance that is waiting for us us in the future and that gives us hope in this life. And here Peter speaks of what God has done for us in the past so that we can be motivated in the present. Peter needed to assure the Christians at the time that their faith is not made by just the apostles themselves. Brother, their faith goes all the way back before the foundations of the world. That their faith is connected to the prophets of old. What Peter's trying to do is motivate them by comparing what they have now—yes, current sufferings—but at the same time, look at the bright side. I don't know if you were like this. If you were like me when when, we were, when I was at school, not now in the doctor program, but you know, when I was in elementary, high school, middle school, college. Sometimes I would get sick, and yes, it made me feel bad and you know, hurt and yucky on the inside, but the look at the bright side. We don't have to go to school, especially on the days when there's an exam because I don't have to take the exam, and I can ask my friends for you know, the answers for those questions on the exam. Yes, things might be miserable for the Christians at the time, but we could look at the bright side. And that's what Peter is doing. He's trying to make this contrast between what they're currently going through, the sufferings that they might be experiencing to the future glories that we have and the salvation we have the moment. It says here, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that that would come to you. This informs us of the reality that some of the Old Testament scriptures that were written by the prophets, they did not know every little thing. They were trying to figure out and piece Scripture all together. There was this progressive revelation that went from one author to the next and that the future prophets knew more than the previous prophets. They had more knowledge the more God allowed them to know about Him through the written Word of God. All that we have is from God and the people that wrote the Scriptures was writing and not having a complete knowledge of what they were writing about. They did not know the life of Christ. They didn't know in its totality. They only knew parts of it based on what God allowed them to know. And the past revelation gives them assurance that what they believe in the present time is true. The Jews at the time were persecuting those Jewish Christians, trying to make them believe that, you know, that this thing that you have is a cult and separated from what the Old Testament has to say. But Peter is trying to assure them, that no, everything that we believe in is connected to the Old Testament. Everything that we have, they're all linked together. Peter's trying to show them otherwise. He says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. In a lot of ways, this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, there was this promise that the Savior will come and rescue humanity. They were separated because of their sin. They were cast out of the garden. But one day there will be a way for mankind to enter back into paradise, to be able to undo the work of the devil. Our salvation goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And all that was in the Old Testament is connected to everything that the apostles wrote in the New Testament. He said that they made careful searches and inquiries. This, is used to, this word is used for prosecuting and turning to, to find evidence. But what were they looking for? Look at verse 11 seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit of God was one that gave them the ability to seek for truth. And it was is it is indicating, they wanted to know when the Messiah was coming. They wanted to know who he was and when they were coming. And it makes us understand that the Old Testament prophets, they... They knew bits and pieces about the Savior and a lot of it, but they did not know the exact timing of when he was going to come. There were even signs of what to look for to let them know when Jesus was going to be there. But they did not know if it was going to be fulfilled the following week, the following month, or the following year. They wrote everything down and they were anticipating both by looking at what's going on around them as well as looking to Scripture itself. It said that Scripture was predicted the sufferings of Christ. The prophets of old, they understood that this Messiah was going to come and he wasn't going to be this uh, king. There was going to be a second coming, that this first coming was going to be here to purchase and ransom uh, people out of the domain of darkness. He it that they predicted his sufferings. The prophets of old, they understood why Jesus had to come. And the Messiah had to come and suffer and die for the people. And yet at the same time, it said, and the glory is to follow. Jesus gets honor and glory because when he died on the cross, he was in the tomb for three days, and he rose again. His, the work on the cross is accomplished. And in this future hope, uh, the, the, the prophets of old, they have this future hope knowing that one day Christ will be raised from the dead and ascend to the heavens This was something that the prophets looked forward to and it is something that you and I as New Testament believers can look back to. The picture of the sufferings of Christ is going to bring in great glories, not just for the people at that time, but for us as well. Just like how Jesus came back to life, giving us the first fruits of the resurrection, we too get to experience that one day in the future. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they we're not serving themselves but you in these things which they have they have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven the prophets wrote about this salvation although they never really experienced it they knew that there was going to be this new covenant coming where the holy spirit dwells in the life of all the believers But they did not experience it themselves. They wrote this so that future generations, people like you and I can look to it and say, wow, this is great. We know more about the Lord. The prophets served us because God worked in their lives to write down Scripture and that he preserved Scripture so that every saint throughout history can experience it. The New Testament gives us clarity and explanation of those Old Testament passages. And when you think about Isaiah, when he wrote down Isaiah 53, he knew that the Savior would be a suffering servant. He knew that the Lord would have to crush him, and when doing so, would please the Father. But he did not know when that was going to be. When you look at the book of Acts, you see the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading the book of Isaiah, and he wanted to know, who is this man? And Philip came to him and told him that all of this testifies of Jesus Christ. And this must be mind-blowing for all of us, that we get to stand on the shoulder of these saints, that we can stand on the shoulders of David, of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, and all of the other Old Testament prophets. We get to know more than them because we have the New Testament. In fact, we know even more than what Peter knows. When Peter was writing this, he didn't have all of Scripture, but we are blessed to have the entire written word immediately in our laps, in our phones, so that we can delight and know about this God. Peter's reminding them and reminding us as well what a very unique and wonderful privilege it is to have the word of God. Brothers and sisters, do you see God's word in this way? Do you delight in God's word? As sojourners, we need to cherish God's word if we were to represent God well. I truly believe that the reason why our modern-day Christians are considered biblically illiterate has nothing to do with the fact that there's technology. It has nothing to do with even reading comprehension or reading ability, but has everything to do with not cherishing and beholding the Word of God. It It has everything to do with not valuing God for what it is. Notice what Peter writes. He said, in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Those were the apostles, got the Lord, raised up the apostles to go and make the disciples. They were known as the foundation where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. They were to go and build the church. This word announced here, it means to declare or to herald something or to proclaim something. The point is that they did their job. They pressed on. They told people about Jesus Christ. The gospel needed to be explained and it needed to be transferred from one person to the next. And this is exactly what Peter and the rest of the apostles did. Peter and the rest of the apostles had a desire to make Jesus' name be made known throughout the world. So in a sense, Peter tried to encourage them of of God's goodness by even scattering them all over because that means the gospel is scattered all over the world. And that's what he wants because he wants people to be saved. The Holy Spirit sent by God to be a helper to the apostles. They recall, the apostles recalled all of the things that Jesus had done in his earthly life and they were able to testify and tell others of it. They were uniquely gifted to go and even do miraculous gifts to prove and authenticate the fact that they are the apostles of God and everything that they say is part they're speaking in the authority of God. They had a they were compelled to go and share the gospel. Do you feel this burden, to go and share the gospel with people in your life. The apostles, their heart beat, it beat missions. Yes, some of the apostles were married, some of them were tent makers, but all of the apostles never forgot their main task. They never forgot their mission, and that is to desperately persuade people to turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. We, as sojourners, are the same way. The same spirit that enabled the apostles to go out and make disciples of all nations, empowering them to be bold and courageous to testify clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same spirit that indwells in us here today. We have a job to do. And it's not primarily as an engineer or a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer or IT or anything that we do for a living. Rather, our main task in this world is to be a soul winner. Peter continues to explain the uniqueness of Scripture. Notice that these are the things that the angels longed to look. Angels wanted to see how all of God's Word played out. Now, just get a little bit of angelology here. Angels are created creatures that are designed to serve the Lord. And yes, the Bible testified that there are some angels that had turned and fell away. But the faithful angels whether they're faithful or unfaithful, they don't know the future. They are created beings in a finite, fixed amount of time. There's a limited knowledge to them. But every single time when the faithful angels saw God's word being penned, they were amazed by what, they, what God has in store for the future. They themselves did not know what was going to happen. So when they were seeing Isaiah or Jeremiah or all of the prophets of old and and even the apostles, as they're penning the New Testament and the old, they were looking at it and seeing, when is this going to happen? They were, I said, long to look. This is the idea of like tippy-toeing. You know, if you see a little kid in a candy store, that's what they do behind the counter. They're tippy-toeing to see what kind of candies are there. Or if you're a short person in the game, there's tall people in front of your tippy-toe to see what's going on in front of you. These angels long to see this. They wanted to see all of God's words come to pass. They expected to see how God is going to play out and rescue humanity while fulfilling all of His promises. The angels... Even saw scripture come to life. They read it and they were blown away by it. Even the passage about how humankind will eventually have dominion and govern angels. They were praising the Lord for it because they know that one day this is what God wants and it will happen and they rejoice knowing that God's word is going to be fulfilled. And each time they saw something come to pass, they praised the Lord and they marveled at God's sovereignty and providence in all things. That's why in Luke chapter 15, there's a parable of the lost coin about how a lady lost the coin and was desperately looking for that one coin and when she found it, she rejoiced and had a celebration. And Jesus used that parable as a way to describe what happens when one lost soul is found, that all of the angels rejoice and they praise the Lord for it because they see God's working in the person that they go from death to life. They see God's work come to pass and it excites them and they long to see God's word fulfilled again why should God motivate us for holiness because when you begin to realize the extent of God's grace in sovereignly and providentially orchestrating every event in history to preserve his words so that millions throughout history can be saved, God doesn't skip a beat when it comes to saving man while at the same time fulfilling his promises. God chose to love us. He brought us into his family and then giving us a knowledge of us through his word. God used these prophets who longed for God's word to come to pass to write down all that God wanted him and them to know. God preserved His Word providentially throughout the ages. It has survived different cultures. It has survived different calamities. It has survived throughout the centuries, all the while while saving people along the way. And those people, moved by God through the Word, go and tell other people about the Word of God, and eventually one passed another to another to the point that we here today get the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't just get parts of Scripture. We get the whole Bible. And we get to see God more through his word. God preserved his word throughout history to reserve a place for you and I in heaven. And it should amaze us all and just how God was willing to go to save us and then give us a means to be encouraged and strengthened through his word. God seemingly put everything into motion in history so that every single one of us can be saved today. And we need to praise the Lord for his love and his goodness and kindness towards us by giving us his word. God placed us in this exact circumstance to know who he is and to believe him. What you and I get to experience today is what all the prophets and the apostles longed for and looked for. We get to have God's Word, and we get to be called children of the Most High. You and I get to know God through His Word, and you and I get to commune with God through His Word. Knowing who God is and what He has done for us must motivate us to live for Him. When we look at the pages of Scripture, it testifies of His goodness and love towards us. If you want to be faithful sojourner in the city, you need to know the Word of God. You need to be motivated by God's Word to live differently. Every time we read, every time we see and discover God's love through his scripture, it should motivate us to live holy lives, which gets to our second point, the call to live a holy life. The call to live a holy life. Verse 13, therefore. Now this is one of those hermeneutical things where whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? The reason why the therefore is here is because Peter is pointing back to everything that he said earlier. All the 12 verses about this hope that we have from God's word, everything that we have, it should motivate us to live differently. Peter is now giving us practical application from biblical theology. This is the result of the things that we have learned about Jesus Christ. And it first begins in the heart by changing our affections, and then it goes to our mind, and then the mind goes to our actions. So now we go to here, we see the mind here. He said, prepare your minds for action. Peter tells them to to get your mind ready. This is a mixed metaphor here. And back then, they would wear long clothes, and whenever they needed to do a hard task, they would have to tie it up because they don't want to trip over the task or have any hindrances. And modern-day equivalent of this phrase would probably be like rolling up your sleeves. Back then, they had to do this in order to function well, and what Peter's trying to get at here is saying that you need to do that with your mind, you need to make sure that the things that go into your mind is guarded. You need to discern whether or not the things that are influencing you is actually going to influence you for the glory of God or is causing you to love the things of the world. You must supervise your thoughts. You must supervise the things that go in and out of your mind. You cannot expect to live a godly or a holy life if you, can't, if you let your mind wander from one thing to the next. And this takes a lot of effort you cannot be lazy with your thoughts. It's truly a battle of your mind. As difficult as, as it may seem, Scripture tells us it's possible to control your mind. This is something that you and I need to be mindful of, that we need to engage our mind, we need to prepare our minds. But how can we do this? How can we do this? You can't control the things that seem... Yes, it's true that you can't really control some things that go into your mind, but you never let those things fester in your mind. You never let it settle in your mind to pollute your mind. You need to clean those things out. If there's a thought that goes in your mind that tries to occupy your mind, you need to evict those thoughts immediately. You can control your mind. You need to choose... To be intentional and thoughtful about not thinking about those things and deliberately choosing to do and think about things that are pleasing to the Lord. You must consistently fill your mind with thoughts about God. This is why in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 8 of chapter 4, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is a command by God for us to dwell on things that are pleasing to Him. And as sojourners, we must always have our thoughts under control. We must always be in control of our thought life. And I is the most basic reason why we need to have a control of thought life is because God sees our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows what's going on in our minds. It doesn't please God when we allow our minds to go to places that are sinful. Our thoughts must be taken captive. We must control our minds because how you, what, how, what you think will impact how you live. It's not only about blocking out bad things in our thoughts, but we also need to be critical with our minds. We need to think clearly. Our minds must be prepared to think and give an answer for those uh, to, to th- things that are going on around us. This is called having a biblical worldview, that we know exactly what is going on in the world so we can give an answer to the world. This question you ask yourself, how are you training your mind? What are you letting into your mind? Are the things that you're listening to or the things that you're watching or the things that you're reading, are these things pleasing to the Lord? Because you need to guard your mind. How are you ensuring that you are protecting your thought life so that, it can, so that your mind can be used for the glory of God? If you don't prepare your mind for action, you will be unstable in all of your ways. Notice also that Peter tells them to keep sober in spirits. This, this, it kind of expands on that. It means that you have clarity, that you can see what is going on, that you're not under the influence of anything. This isn't speaking necessarily of drug and alcohol, although that does have components there. But it's just being level-headed, that you can think clearly about situations, that you don't allow your emotions to compromise your mind you have control over your thoughts. Christians can't be fuzzy in their thinking. I know in our day and age where there's this fascination now with drugs and there's you know recreational drugs and all of these things to really get people to relax and not to think clearly. Yet, although they're okay with it in, in a general life setting, there is a limit to that because they would not want a pilot to be... To not be sober. I mean, just imagine if you're on the plane. If you're on a plane and then the announcement over the head said, ladies and gentlemen, we finally reached 10,000 feet and we're 10,000 feet high up. Speaking of high, so am I. Ha ha, have a nice trip. <laughs> you would be petrified. You would quickly look for the nearest parachute and jump out of the plane. Or if you're under surgery and right before they put you under, he does, like, he does some sort of drug right in front of you. You would be terrified because you might think, Next time I wake up, I'm going to lose all of my limbs. Yet when it comes to spiritual matters, if these things like being a pilot and surgeon, if, if you need to be clear thinking about things because lives are at stake, then so much, how much more is our spiritual life? Because for us, we need to be clear thinking so that we can give an answer because souls are at stake. Christians should be the most clear thinking in terms of how to look and answer the questions of the world. There must be, yes, there are gray areas that are debatable, but there are things that the Scripture is very clear on that we need to give a clear and reasonable and articulate answer to it. Theology is life. However you live your life, there is always going to be a biblical reason to why you do what you do. And this is for us, just for a thought exercise. When you look at your life, ask yourself, what is the biblical reason for what I am doing? You can even talk about those trivial things like your clothes. Why do I dress the way that I dress? Because I can assure you the Bible has an answer for that. We think about your work, why do I apply for this job? I assure you there is a biblical reason on why you want to have a certain job. Whatever it is in your life, whether it's small, trivial things to big life decisions, the Bible will give you biblical principles to know how to operate in those situations. And the, re- and the only way we can do that is if we are sober about life. We want to be clear-headed. And it is not a surprise in our day and age that hates God, that wants to dull our senses. But Christians cannot be that way. As sojourners, we are the people that have, the o- we're the only people that have the answer to this life. We're the only people that can answer the toughest questions because we have the word of the living God and it should give us sobriety. It should make us solemn in our thinking. Peter continues about the mind by, by describing the, by the hope that we have. Look at the end of verse 13. It said, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the command by God to Peter for all believers to think about the future return of Christ. There is certainty that there is this reality that is coming for us. Hope gives us perspective in this world. And if we continue to have our minds this way, that means that we have a holy mind. It gives us meaning on why we are here. It gives us purpose. It gives us answers. If you ever wonder why you exist, you need to, you need to prepare your minds to do so and act in this life uh, and, and live, uh, you have to, use your mind to you prepare your mind to do an act in this life. You also need to think soberly about every area of your life. And lastly, you need to have this hope of salvation. You are called to use your mind in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. You need to train your mind to believe and live out the truth. The natural outcome of guarding your mind is that you will live for the Lord. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Now, I love our Bible translations, I love our Bible translators, but there's sometimes when you, know, you could disagree with the Bible translators. Because when you look at verse 14, in the NAS there's like a, there's like a, a cross, like, a, like another translation that says, children of obedience. And I actually prefer children of obedience over obedient children, because I think it, it it captures the idea of what Peter tried to get at. Because in the entire New Testament, when you see the phrase child of so-and-so or children of this, it's supposed to describe to you a qualitative nature of this person. It's supposed to explain to you what this person is about. For example, James and John are, were known as the sons of thunder because they were hot-headed. They wanted lightning, to be, fire to come down on people that, that disrespected them. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. The Pharisees were known as son of the devil. And before you and I were saved, we were known as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. When you see the phrase sons of obedience, that means that there is a character and a nature to it. And for believers, we are called children of obedience. Or obedient children it means that we have this new nature in Christ to obey Jesus Christ. In every generation, there's bound to be a group of youth that always claim, every generation, no matter how old they are, I know some of you guys are in this category, some of you were in this category because you're a lot older, but every single generation will have a group of youth that will claim that they are completely non-conformist. Like, I'm non-conformist, I do whatever I want. But you realize that all of those people are doing exactly what other people are doing. They're just living like their peers. And for the Christian, we understand that a true non-conformist, especially in this city is to live like Christ, is to look like Christ. And that goes on for every generation. You can tell who truly is a non-conformist when they look like Jesus Christ. There also implies that if you have no desire to fight sin in your life, that means you are not a child of God. Rather, you're the child of the devil. Christians are remade to obey Jesus Christ imperfectly for sure. But generally speaking, we obey Christ. Sojourners can't be faithful in the city if we are not living a holy life. If our nature is like the nature of those in the world, we cannot expect to win people out of the world. We should want to obey God because we love God. And Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yes, we will fail. But when we fail, we, we, we repent of it quickly. We're broken by that sin and we look to the cross and we just turn away and flee from sin. Because continual disobedience to the Lord raises the question of whether or not you are a genuine believer. Notice Peter says, do not be conformed. This shows up twice in the entire New Testament. One here and and the other is in Romans chapter 12. And this idea is that you have this complete transformation now. Don't be conformed to who you were in the past. But you are supposed to be transformed in who you are now in the present. Notice that do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. And the word lust here, although we think it has some sexual connotation, is, it is that, but there's more than that. It's any strong desire that you have that is not, is not directed towards God. Anything that you would categorize as an idol, that is the things that you love. Anything that you love more than God, that is the lust of, the, of your former self. So it could be things like materialism, it could be laziness, it could be the love of money, it could be pride, it could be greed. All of those things that you formerly love, by God's grace, you don't anymore. In fact, you have the grace, by the grace of God, you have the ability to obey Him. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Whenever you see the word but, that is a very strong contrast in the New Testament. It's making a contrast from what you were in the past to what you are now. Or sometimes it's using to condemn us by saying what you were, what you're supposed to be, but how you're living now. So when we see here, he's making this contrast from what we were. We used to be conformed to the lust of the flesh and our ignorance. But now we're called to be like God. But have you ever wondered, what does it mean to be holy? We're called to be holy like our God is holy. But what does the word holy mean? Because, yes, it's true that it's separation, but it's not like God made the world and then he's described holy. Because if, if, if it's only about physical distance, then it's really what the deists believe. The deists believe that God created the world and then just walked away. That would be holy if, it's, if that was a definition. But it's not just physical distance. When the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, he's speaking of the moral purity, of moral perfection. What makes him separate and distinct and unique from all of us is the fact that he is the standard of what is right. He is the source of all that is good. God's holy makes us radically different from him. We are imperfect, but God is the perfectly holy God. And the result of that, because if we truly understand what a morally pure deity is like, what will naturally happen is that we will admire and adore him. In fact, that's the result of our lives as well. If we are consistent with our lives and faithful to the Lord in every aspect, we will win people to Christ because of the way that we live. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse fifteen: For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one an aroma from death to death, and to, an, an, and to a, another an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul writes in Second Corinthians passage about how, for those who do not who are not chosen by the Lord, when they look at their life, it will offend them because it convicts them of our of their sin. But if they are chosen by God and they see our life, they see how. Faithful we are to Him, what's going to naturally happen is that we're going to, those people are going to be drawn to the Lord because of our faithful living. You know, even non believers in some ways are drawn to Christians when they have integrity and nobility. Even though they may not like what you believe about anything in Scripture, they can at least respect you because they see your life and they say, yeah, this guy actually lives what he proclaims and what he professes. Non-believers, when they exhibit good qualities, they could respect you even though they may not like your God. And this is why Christians need to have moral excellence. It's a call for all of us to be holy. And what is tremendously sad is that sometimes non-believers can act in such a way that makes believers put to shame. What I mean by that, sometimes non-believers are incredibly patient. Even non-believers can be very kind Non-believers can be long-suffering. Long, uh, non-believers can even at times be gracious. Sometimes even be better than Christians. But as sojourners, as true believers, we must be holy—not to boast about our ability or boast about our own might, but is to gl- get allow people to see a glimpse of our Savior. God called us for this purpose to display Christ's likeness by being holy as he is holy. We must look like Jesus Christ. As a parent, you notice something about children, or maybe for you, you notice this about your life when you were a child, that there's a tendency for us to emulate our parents. Part of the reason is just because there's just the exposure. They don't know any difference, so they just copy you. But other times, I think the reason why they copy you it's because, you lo- because they love the parent. The kid loves the parent, and they want to be like them. And that should be for us as well. The more exposure we have for God's Word, the greater desire it is for us to be like God. And that would mean we will mean we'll look more and more like God. We'll take after our Heavenly Father. We were at one point children of the devil But God ransomed our souls and adopted us into his family so that we can look like our Savior. Notice, he said, be holy in all your behavior. This is all-encompassing. It's not just some things, but all things. Every area of your life must look like Jesus Christ. There's this assumption in the Christian life that we think as long as we do these things right, we could just do the seven or eight things that we do well, that we could neglect all the other things that we're not doing right. You may not be a drunkard, but you could still be a slanderer. You may not even be a slanderer, but you're incredibly impatient. You might not be an impatient person, but you could be an envious person. You may not be envious, but you're disobedient to your elders. You may be submissive to your elders, but you refuse to get baptized. You may already be baptized, but you love to steal things. You may not have any problems with theft, but you will not gather with the saints. So we have this wrongful assumption that as long as there are certain categories of things that we are going, that we're doing right, that we could not think about the areas that we're doing wrong. It's not just fleeing the bad things, but also pursuing the right things as well. Because the Pharisees did just that. The Pharisees were religious people that did some things right. But there were so many things that they got wrong and God condemned them for it. And God will condemn you for it as well if you're not willing to be humble enough to look at God's word and be convicted by it and then turn away from those things. Because when you don't turn those things away, you're not being a child of obedience. Rather, you're being a child of wrath. Sojourners that we must represent christ well and in order for us to win people to christ we must be willing to put off every sin and have excellent behavior in every area of our life we want to show the beauty of our god and we can only do so if we strive to live holy lives look at verse 16 because it's written you shall be holy for i am holy Notice that this is what it isn't saying. It's not saying you need to be holy to achieve salvation. He's saying you need to be holy because our God is holy. Jesus is our template and model of holy living, and we want to continue to be like him. We as Christians, as soldiers in this land, we must look like Jesus Christ. There will, it, we should look strange to people, and people might think of us as weird and be suspicious of us because the way that we live must show devotion to the Lord. And look, just because a non-believer sees your holy life, it may not convince them right away, but at least it gives you credibility when you share the gospel that you actually believe what you're preaching to them. You actually believe when you're sharing the gospel that there is a holy God that is angry at sinful man and that we need to place our faith in Jesus to escape the wrath that is to come. The way that you live your life testifies whether or not you even believe what you're telling them. If you claim to be a follower of Christ but have no desire to fight sin, that will call you to either repentance or just stop calling yourself a Christian altogether. Because a true follower of Christ will be someone that is obedient to the Lord in every area. They will seek to honor Him because they want to look like Christ. They want to show what Christ would have been like if He was here today. Looking back... When we, are, when we know that we're all driven by what we love most, these conspiracies that want to know what happened to JFK, they were waiting and waiting and anticipating. And in 1992, the government passed this act called the Freedom of Information Act, which basically allows them to open any, any file for the public to know. And originally, they had this hope of 2039, but instead of waiting in 2039, they had to wait, 19, uh, they to wait in a little bit longer. But when they... Got the file when it was open to general public. They said they'll give a preview of what's inside this document. And they were, you know, preview when we think, we think of looking at like 10% of it, but their preview was 98%. They showed 98% of what's in this document about this whole case about JFK. So they kept 2% back. And they said they'll release that 2% in 2017. But you can imagine what it's like to just wait in 1992, that all I have to wait is just a few more years to know and solve this case once and for all. They live for this moment. They long for those 2%. But what is exciting, what is more exciting for us as Christians than the 2% that the conspiracy theorists long for, it should be the 100% of Scripture that we have that reveals who God is. What should give us great hope is not the testimonies of who shot JFK, but the testimony of God's revealed in Scripture that points us back and forward to God's faithfulness. What should perplex us more is not who put a bullet through the uh, the head of the president, but rather why would the King of kings and Lord of lords put a crown of thorns on his head for us in this life? All that is recorded by the prophets and the apostles from every verse, chapter, and book, and testament tells us about how holy our God is. These things that were written down, things that the prophets, investigate it and wanting to see things that the angels long for, the things that the apostles write, we get to experience it in this life in its totality because we have the Word of the living God. And knowing that we have this great God must motivate us to live a holy holy life. It should motivate to devote our lives to this holy God. We want to be holy so that this city Can, although imperfectly, see a glimpse of the God of heaven. If we want to show the city the value of our God, there must be a willingness to devote our lives to Him. We must be willing to put off every sin and every encumbrance so that Jesus Christ can be magnified and be made known in this world. All that was written was inspired by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and the apostles to show us that we were at one point separated from this holy God. And God, being being holy does not have have anything to do with sinful man other than to judge him. But God in his grace and his mercy found a way so that we can be made right with him, so that we can be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He bridged this gap so that we can be with him to be part of his family, so we can be known as children of obedience. This great love that was demonstrated to us on the cross must cause us to devote our entire life to him Who gave us eternal life, sojourners? As uh, uh, sojourners, we're called to be like Christ. We're called to love Him and do all that He has commanded. It is the Word of God that motivates us and inspires us to be like Him, to willing to lay aside everything so we could look more like Jesus Christ. Why does? SF need SFBC because SFBC members and believers need to look like Jesus Christ to show the world that this is a God that is worthy of our entire life. That this is a God that is worthy of our devotion. That this is a God that we are willing to die for. And if we have that desire, the same desire that the apostles and the prophets have of winning people to Christ, we're willing to give up everything so that Christ may be made known. And I hope that is for all of us today, that we're willing to do it joyfully because of the love that he has shown us in his word that motivates us to live a life of holiness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for revealing who you are through your word, that you are indeed a holy God. We are undeserving sinners who have sinned over and over again. But by your grace, you've given us the ability to know you, to understand what your word has to say. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we seek to live holy lives. If there are any type of sin that we are holding on to, may you cause our hearts to let those sins go, to no longer delight in those sins, but to see these things as an abomination in your eyes. Help us live holy lives so that we can show the world who your son is. Lord, I pray that you give us opportunity this week to be able to go and share the gospel with people, that for people that in our neighborhoods, and our family, coworkers, wherever we are, Lord, that you give us a strong desire to tell them of the hope that can only come from you, Lord. Lord, may we be holy this week and every day, Lord. In your son's name I pray, amen.